Well, last week again was one of those really ordinary weeks, last Sunday, you remember? Anyone remember that? It was really, really ordinary. Just, just no anointing, nothing in any way that would help us move forward. And in case you haven't worked out, I'm being deeply, deeply sarcastic. Sarcastic, I think, is the actual word. Um, and I want to pick up and follow along from that. Is this like bouncing around the room as much as it is in my head, or is that just in my head? It's because it's really hollow, yeah. Is it right? It just feels really bouncy up here. It could be just me. Um, and the size of my ears as well. They're pretty huge. Um, what? I'm not insecure. I just have really big ears, physically. And anyway, so... I want us to, to dive into that realm um, a little bit more because our mission as a church is to show the world what love really is. And what Amy brought to us last week was so profound and powerful. If you missed it, please, it's on the podcast, get it. And if you were here, get it again. Listen to it again. Listen to it over. The, the slides that she showed that have the whole outline were all there as well, just to help you um, follow along with the structure of that. Um, but it was really obvious in the room that God was doing some pretty cool heart ministry uh, among a lot of us. And um, we want to kind of take that and, uh, and take that somewhere a little bit more. But um, before I teach into some of this, as a core team, we spent all day Friday, all day Saturday being trained in heart healing ministry um, based in... A ministry called Elijah House, and then a whole lot of us had some ministry um, through the week. I was a bit of a hard case. I had to have two sessions, <laughs> um, but, um, but that, was, that was really awesome, some of the best ministry I've received in years. Um, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll probably share a couple of testimonies from that, and I've asked Megs if she'll come back. I know you just sat down, but stand up again, um, around just some of the things that God did in your heart this week as you got ministry because we want to give you an idea of what does it actually look like to really crack your heart open and have God touch it and heal some stuff and what is the difference that that makes yep, yep. I probably need tissues um, so yes last Monday I had ministry and it was awesome it was really deep um, hence it's I'm just going to be really raw with what I'll share um, so I'm a bit scared about it, but if you can't do it brave, do it scared. So I'm doing it. Um, I, uh, one of the things we did learn was that most, the root of most things that are going on in our lives happen between the age of, between conception and the age of six. And I was like, wow, I don't actually remember most of my life between conception and the age of six. I probably couldn't tell you much at all. Um, and one of the things that happened in my ministry was that God gave me a memory that I hadn't had before um, from when I was about the age of five. Um, and that memory was... Um, <clears throat> that memory was of the moment that my parents um, took my sister, who was severely disabled... Um, a way to live permanently in a children's hospital because we couldn't, they couldn't take care of her full time at home and I was the oldest and she was 18 months younger than me and then my brother came along five years after me. So I don't know the maths of that. 
But it was of that moment when they were actually taking her out the front door and I remember standing in the kitchen screaming, saying, don't take her. I don't want you to take her. She's my sister. Don't take her. And a five-year-old doesn't understand all of that. I now as an adult can rationalise that. But a five-year-old doesn't. And as a five-year-old, my heart decided quite a few things that day. Um, I made a vow that I will choose to look after my younger brother now so that he doesn't ever have to leave. So um, I think Tim's mentioned parental inversion. That was me. I grew up really fast and I chose to look after my brother as a mum. So I became a mum at the age of five. <laughs> uh, this, this led to a belief then that I need to hold on to people tight in my life or they will leave or reject me. I also made a vow that I will be strong and responsible and that I am fine. If you ever hear me say I'm fine, just check that I actually am. <laughs> I also made a judgment on my parents as a five-year-old for taking my sister away and for not trying harder to look after her. I judged myself for not helping my mum more. Maybe if I'd helped more as a five-year-old, she would have stayed. Uh, this also led to a vow that I made to always help people and to meet other people's needs. Watching my parents go through all of that till my sister passed away when she was 15 and even after that, I judged in my life that parenting would always be hard. And I judged that my life would always be hard because I watched my parents go through really hard and I've taken that into my parenting. And I judged that as a parent, it would always be hard. And I've prophesied that over myself, and parenting is hard. However, we took that to the cross. I broke all of those vows in my ministry time. I broke off all of those judgments in my ministry time. And now I feel like I am free to be able to parent the way that I've always wanted to parent without all those judgments and vows going on in my heart. And I'm free to discover what it's like to not have to be responsible for everything all the time and be over-responsible all the time and to not always be fine. So I'm looking forward to my newfound freedom, which is still really raw, but we're on a journey, so that's me. You can see that's pretty raw, hey? And that's pretty real because most of the, the stuff that we need healing from comes from our significant emotional experiences, significant traumas. And the younger those things happen, the more they form how we see the world. Um, but in those judgments and vows that Meg's talked about, we actually make spiritual agreements that have spiritual power. Um, I had some of my own. Um, uh, Amy talked about parental inversion um, last week, is when you, when you become over-responsible, when your parents lack in some area, um, you, you take on roles and responsibilities that you shouldn't have to as a child. And how that often plays out later in life is that you become over-responsible, you take on things that are actually the responsibility of somebody else, like their pain, their journey, their life. 
And um, as a result, you become very prone to burnout, bitterness, more and more judgments, like, why won't they just work harder? Look at me. I'm working really hard. Um, I had this really um, insightful, I actually had two very insightful sessions where when you go back that far, a lot of the vast majority of stuff you don't remember with your brain, but when you connect with the Holy Spirit and he engages with your spirit, he starts to show you things and, uh, and show you things really, really clearly. And I remember really clearly on Monday morning the statement coming out of my mouth, oh, man, I was inverted even in the womb. Um, <laughs> that, that goes back a fair way. Um, I, the circumstances surrounding my birth were within the couple of years before I was born, my mum had four deaths in her family, um, that included both of her parents, it included her brother-in-law, and then following after me, not long after me, her, her twin brother died of cancer. So there were five deaths surrounding my birth. And some really affirming stuff that I realised is so much of the, um, the empathy that I carry, which is the ability to feel what other people are feeling. I actually had back there, as, as, as the father took me back to then, I was actually feeling mum's pain all the way back there but I made a decision at that point hey this is not really a good time for me to be coming into the world um, there's a whole lot going on for mum so I will meet my own needs I will subjugate my own needs I will I will push them down in order that others will be okay um, and as we were going through that process, my brain is starting to see all of the connections of, oh, my gosh, I still do that. Oh, I, I still do that. still do that. And that was three hours on Monday and then three hours again on Wednesday night um, where I realised that even within, you know, while I was in the womb and then up to even the first few weeks of my life because I was born really preemie, I was put in a humidity crib, and there was one incident in my life where... Um, I said to Amy, I really need to get some healing into this particular area. I felt like I was just put in a box and shoved over there. And then when I told her about me being five weeks preemie and I, apparently I had really huge hands and feet but no flesh on me, so everybody laughed at me. That's, that, I didn't need healing from that. I just think that's funny too. Um, but um, I still have fairly huge hands and feet and no flesh on me, but whatever. <laughs> Not much has changed. See, it still plays out, right? Um, but, but she said, can't you see over the box in a corner and a humidity crib is in a box over in the corner, especially 40, how old am I, 45 years ago, um, when a child needs that physical touch. And I, I don't know, if any of you know me at all, I'm a huge touch love language, huge. Um, I think I discovered a little bit as to why um, during that because there was, there was an absolute deficit there and I made all sorts of vows and decisions that I will look after my own needs, I will meet my own needs. This is just the way, like my circumstances, well, that's just the way it is, so suck it up and just do what you got to do. Um, I've burnt out twice in ministry. I'm, I've been burnt out free for 20 years, which is really good. Um, but I can see how those decisions kept on playing out, playing out, playing out all through those situations. They weren't the only things that were happening, but they were certainly playing out. The reason I share that is simply that I, it's important that we understand that a lot of things that happen in our life aren't random, um, that there are actually spiritual agreements that we make even early in life, our spirit is fully formed, even if our brain isn't. And, 
our spirit is able to make agreements that leave doors open that start to play out in later life. And the value for a whole lot of us, and a whole, you know, there, there are many more stories to share. Um, and those of us who went through it are getting together again this week just to chat through and debrief on what's happening for all of us and keep that healing journey going. But the realisation that we make vows, we make choices very early in life that often we're unaware of until we put ourselves in an environment of the Holy Spirit and say... I want to deal with every door that has been opened to the enemy, every agreement that I've made that is not in line with the will of God for my life. I want that uprooted and, and pulled out. And it's a pretty raw journey, hey? <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm about to go. So early next year, um, we're all going to have a chance. We're going to get Amy and, and probably some of her peeps to come back and to give us a chance, the rest of us a chance to go through um, a process like that. And can I just say, please, please, please um, do it. Um, we'll, we'll probably share some more over the coming weeks um, around that, but don't underestimate the importance of the decisions that you make, especially in your younger years, and how we can even make decisions back there to harden our heart that we then... Are still dealing with as an adult, and we're not. A, we're unaware. Why do I struggle to experience God? Why? Why can't I connect with God like this person or like that person seems to? And it's often somewhere way back there, due to a painful, difficult experience, um, or where a need wasn't met that should have been met. That I made a choice to go. Well, I just won't experience that anymore. I just won't experience that need. I'll suppress it. I'll push it away. And here I am now as an adult, struggling to experience. A God or a certain aspect of him. And we want to kind of crack that thing open and just see all of us hit a whole new level of freedom. And as a, as a core team, I think we feel like we've accelerated a whole lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, and we want to see that for all of us because it's, it's really, really cool. Now, one of the things that Amy talked about last week was maturing love. And when, when we do move toward each other, it will bring up a whole lot of stuff. Uh, and if you like, you know, that's some of the stuff that came up for us as we were, um, as we were walking into um, this kind of thing. And we were doing that with each other. You know, some of the ministry that happened was actually in a group in front of each other, um, you know, doing pretty raw and vulnerable, which was actually incredibly awesome because when your brokenness is exposed to the light and is loved unconditionally, that's an incredibly healing experience and it just smashes shame out of the park. But where I want to head and where I want to land today is... Exploring a little bit more of what that maturing love looks like. And the highest expression of maturing love is a thing called covenant. Covenant. Now, if you look back into the Old Testament, um, the simplest form of covenant is a bit like a contract. You know, where you know, one party signs and the other party signs and we're in an agreement. Now, the way that they did it back then was... Um, a little bit more graphic than what we do um, these days. Why, you know, just getting a pen and signing a document, you sign the document, all right, we've now got a legally binding agreement. Is that fair enough, Stephen, Mr. Lawyer? Yes. <laughs> um, this is how, how they used to do it way back in the Old Testament was they used to get a bunch of animals, they'd get chickens, cat, like all sorts of animals, and literally they would cut them in half. And they would put one on one, half on one side, half on the other side. They would line it up. And then they would, as part of the agreement, they would walk through the middle with the blood and the guts and the, you know, 
cleft in twain, you know, cut in half, animals, they would walk through the middle of it. And in walking through the middle of it, they are essentially saying, may this happen to me if I don't fulfill the words that we have agreed on today. That, 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 that was, so they used to actually call it, we, we would cut a covenant as distinct from just sign a document. It was a, it was a fairly um, intense thing. Now, as we read all through scripture, we find that God's a covenant-making God. That God didn't just create this thing called covenant, but he himself is a covenant-making God. Can anyone think of what, what was the first covenant that was made? Or at least what, some of the early covenants that were made early in scripture. Noah. And what was the covenant with Noah? Never again will I destroy the earth like that. So that was a, a, a covenant that God made with Noah. And that is um, him binding himself to that agreement to say, that is the way I am going to react. That is the way I am going to be in that situation. Who else did he make a covenant with? Abraham. Abraham covenant said, and we, you and I could probably have a really good conversation about the Abrahamic covenant and all of the outflows of that and the impact on the end times. Yes. I'm not going to get a nod. <laughs> but um, what was the covenant with Abraham? Yeah, you'll be my people, I will be your God. And then from then on, yeah, so all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is God binding himself in a relationship with Abraham to say, uh, and you know, in that city said it was an everlasting covenant that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And ultimately you see you know, his seed come out in Jesus and all the nations of the earth get blessed through him. And there's a whole lot more to that. But there is also this, this covenant between us as humans. And as it is in heaven, so let it be on earth. And so what we see that covenant is actually a reflection of the heart of God. He is a covenant-keeping God. And the highest expression of love is covenant but what does that look like between two humans so if you happen to have a bible an ipad an iphone um, an app or something or other let's go to 1 samuel chapter 18 1 samuel chapter 18 and this is a relationship that a whole lot of us will be familiar with but i just want to use it to unpack a little bit in a pragmatic sense what does covenant relationship look like so as we mature in love as we move toward one another what is the essence of that kind of relationship what does it look like we know that that kind of relationship is going to bring up all of our stuff okay we, we got that really really clearly last year the last week sorry and this is the sort of stuff we've actually been pushing into since the beginning of the year and our mission is to show the world what love is so what does that look like as expressed in a covenant relationship? So 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. This is talking about David and Jonathan. So it says, When he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now, if you've got an NIV there, it will say they, they became one in spirit. Um, the, new King, the New King Jimmy, is what, which is what I'm reading, and New King James, which is what I'm reading, well, there's probably a little bit more um, granular in what that language is. So it says, the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him, speaking of David, that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. In other words, so David was now in Saul's house while Saul was king. 
Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, as in on Jonathan, and gave it to David with his armour, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So we see that they made a covenant. So they, they enter into a covenant relationship. What were some of the aspects of the covenant relationship that we can see there? Now, to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. And therefore, because Saul was king, Jonathan was actually the rightful heir to the throne. Understanding that, really important aspect of this. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. And in this moment, in this exchange... What is happening? Where, um, verse 4, where it says, Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armour, even to his sword and his own belt. This wasn't just, um, okay, now we get to share clothes. We've now got that kind of relationship where we get to share wardrobes. We're living in the same house now. You can wear my clothes. I can wear yours. Yeah, that's more of a thing girls do typically, isn't it? They just like, oh, that would look good on me. Can I wear that? And then you never see it again. Okay, that's clearly not funny. So... So this is way more than just that. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. And in the course of this covenant, Jonathan sees something on the life of David. He sees an anointing on David and he recognises that David is actually God's next anointed king. And yet Jonathan is the one who is the heir. So in earthly terms... That throne belongs to Jonathan. But Jonathan, in this relationship with David, sees what's on his life. And so that act of taking off his robe, his sword, his belt, was him saying, everything that is rightfully mine, I can see that God is on you for this. And so I'm taking this off and I'm putting it on you. And what he was saying is, essentially, I am giving my heirship to you because I'm recognising the anointing of God on your life, even though that place is rightfully mine. Do you get the idea? Like this is a huge, huge step that Jonathan is taking here. So what does covenant look like? I want to suggest one of the first things that covenant looks like is I see what's on your life. When I'm in covenant relationship with someone, I see what is on your life and I will fight for it even if it costs me. I see what's on your life. I, want to, I have the eyes of God over you. I see what you carry. I see who you are at your core. And I will fight for that thing that you carry, even if it costs me personally. That's covenant relationship. Now, this is, um, I haven't got the right language. To this is a same-sex relationship, but not that kind. <laughs> okay. This is two men allowing their souls to be knit together. And this is something, you know, your average Australian male is terrified of this kind of a relationship. You know, it's like, well, it's not blokey, that's not, that's not kosher. No, I don't Yet this is so kingdom, where you see men heart connected to each other fighting for one another. See, the, the most common thing that us as guys do is we, we compete against each other. Oh, you think that's good? Have a look at what I got. Your car is a, you know, I'm making stuff up now, but yeah, we, we tend to compete. Now, 
back in those days, one of the things about kings is that they were typically warriors. They would lead their armies into battle. And if they were, if Jonathan and David were in this typical competitive relationship, you see, Jonathan wasn't just this lazy kind of um, prince that hung around the castle and just kind of soaked in all of the, the goodness of the king, the, the king and the kingdom and just enjoyed that. Jonathan was a kick-butt warrior. Go back four chapters to 1 Samuel 14 and you will see one of the most outrageous acts of boldness. Many of us will know the story. Jonathan, so there's a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. Jonathan is there with his armour bearer. So he looks like he's on one side of a valley and he looks over the other side and he sees an army kind of rank of about 20 Philistines over on the hill, over on the other side. So him, big valley, Philistines. Now, Philistines were not known for their friendliness. Um, they, they were relatively, um, they were relatively violent types, not the sort that you would take to the fiddler, you know, after church and let's sit down and have a chat. So here's Jonathan. Here's Jonathan's armour bearer. Two of them, 20 Philistines. Yeah, this is, this is worse than, you know, the Australian rugby team facing up against the All Blacks and just looking there and going, this is so going to hurt. <laughs> um, I know I am an Australian supporter just for the record, but any time facing the All Blacks, I think, would just like pain. So, and this is a whole lot worse than that. And so da- Jonathan looks at his armour bearer, kind of looks at himself, looks at the army and goes, I reckon we can take them. <laughs> and so he comes up with his strategy of let's call out to them, let's, Two verses 20, outnumbered 10 to 1, and says, so let's call out to them. And if they say, come over here to us, we'll take that as a sign that God's with us and he's going to give the enemy into our hand. Like, what the heck? <laughs> like, what a, what a great plan, right? This is, this, is, this is so awesome. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. He sent choirs into battle and furniture polish, you know, people into battle as well um, at the lead. So this shouldn't surprise us. And so they say... You know, the Philistines say, hey, come on over here. We want to tell you something. Like, yeah, we want to tell you you're dead. Uh, and so Jonathan goes, look, the battle is surely ours. Now, if you know, I don't know a huge amount about military battle strategy, particularly in those days, because I'm not that old. But um, one of the things I know is that when you're outnumbered and your enemy is in an elevated position to you and to get up to fight them, you have to go up the hill you're in deep stook. But for some reason, Jonathan thinks this is a really good idea and this is an amazing strategy. He crawled, like they actually had to crawl up the hill on hands and knees to get there. And then God sent this thing in the middle of the army. They all beat the hell out of each other, killed each other, and they won. This is Jonathan. So if you're kind of looking for a resume of someone who has kingliness on him, Jonathan would be top of the class without fail. And he could, yeah, and then, yeah, it had been said, yeah, David had knocked out Goliath. Yeah, that that was a pretty impressive day, you know, in battle right there, you know, slaying, yeah, who's this uncircumcised? The whole army is terrified. By the way, Goliath was nine foot nine, just for the record. He He wasn't just tall. He was nine foot nine. Like, I'm six four, I'm pretty tall. Nine foot nine would be... Probably his head possibly even through the ceiling. And he wouldn't have been a skinny guy either. 
So can you imagine? I'm so going to feed you to the birds of the air. Like, I can't actually quite see your face up there. It's a long way, but that's what I'm going to do. That, that's what it would have been like. And so, you know, we know the story well. David flings it, kills him, cuts off his head and walks back to King Saul still carrying the head, which is just so gross. But anyway, that's seemingly what they did. It would be easy for, for, for Jonathan to be saying, you know what? You killed one big guy. I took down 20. Single-handedly, because the armor bearer just carried the armor. And, you know, they could, the armor bearer could kind of come past and go, you know, do a bit of stuff. But pretty much it was 20 to 1, really, when you're talking about actual soldiers. It was, he was outnumbered 20 to 1. There could easily be this competitive thing going on between them. Of, yeah, you took down Goliath, but I took down 20 Philistines single-handedly. Beat that. And get this thing, this comparison thing going on. But that wasn't the covenant relationship. The covenant relationship says, I see what's on your life. I see who you are. I'm not reading through my own resume to see if I measure up. I'm seeing who you are and I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for what God has put on your life, even if it costs me. That's the first part of covenant. The second part I want to suggest simply is love because it says in verse... Three, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Like, we got to get a grid for this. And this is, this is again, male-to-male relationships, like same-gender relationship. Whether it's male-to-male, female-to-female, there isn't a kingdom expression of love that's not weird. It's not like boundary violation. It's... <laughs> It's entirely appropriate and it is incredibly life-giving and yet it's one of the things that we protect ourselves against the most for all the sorts of reasons that we were talking about um, in ministry, all the sorts of things that Amy brought up last week. When When our life is full of vows and judgments, one of the outflows of that is we make decisions and reinforce decisions that actually keep those kind of relationships at a safe distance rather than draw them to us. And a covenant relationship looks like life on life. It looks like we live life absolutely heart connected, absolutely connected in soul, not just in we'll turn up to the same event each week or a couple of times each week or add a few of our own or we'll have a drink together here or let's go watch some sport together here. It's something so much deeper than that. That's love. And then thirdly, and there's so much more, but this will be the last one I really have time to unpack today because we're already um, heading toward injury time. And that is, Jonathan was unarmoured in the presence of David. So we talked about the, the taking off the armour, the robe, all of that. There, there, was, there was a prophetic significance in that of saying, I recognise actually you're God's next anointed king. And even though it's my right, I recognise that the anointing's on you. So here. And, and I, will, I, I will serve the anointing that's on you. That, that itself is an incredible act. But as a result, Jonathan now had no protection around David. There was nothing to protect David from Jonathan. So from Jonathan's perspective, if he was going to be protected, the only person that could do it now is David because they had no armour between them, no self-protection from each other.
that there is a level of connection and relationship that I believe the Father wants us to fight for, first in our own hearts, but with each other, that he wants us to go after with each other, that, that is so ridiculously kingdom. You know, most of our, our paradigm of kingdom, for, for a lot of us anyway, has been church, church events. We, we come to the same programs, we come to the same events, we do that, and, and we might form connections, we might have coffee together you know, outside of that, but, but largely it's been church, church events, home groups, all of that kind of thing. This is, this is taking it to another level, fairly substantially, and it's saying, I'm going to let you see right into me. I, I'm going to show you what's really inside me. In other words, there is no armour between you and me. I'm actually going to open up my heart and I'm going to show you what's there, the good, the bad and the ugly. But you're going to do the same and we are going to live in a relationship where we can see right into each other's hearts but love covers, love protects. We're actually going to protect one another. Don't you remember one of the, uh, one of the stories in Noah's life where... Um, how do I say it? He got a little bit drunk and a little bit nude. And um, when I mean a little bit, like very, on both counts. It's hard to be a little bit nude, actually, isn't it? It's kind of if you are or you aren't. Anyway, moving right along. And um, there, were, there was one lot, of son, one lot of Noah's sons that basically made fun of Noah, but then there was one son that got a big sheet because the father was like, Noah was kind of passed out from drunk, but was quite uncovered, he actually backed his, he heard that this is what had happened. He backs his way into the tent so he doesn't see, lays a cover over his father so that his father is now covered. So covenant looks like even when the other one is doing their worst, I'm going to cover them. I'm going to cover their shame. I'm going to, I am going to move to protect them I'm not going to now disassociate myself from them for fear of what, happened, might, what, ha- what might happen to my reputation if I'm now associated with them. That's unarmoured. James says it like this in James 5. He says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now, don't have time to go into the depth of it, but that word sins there is not the same word as we have for sin. Yet when you, look, when you talk about Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's that word hamartia, that archery term that means miss the mark. If you go back to the original original Greek, that's not the word that's used for confess your sins. If you look at the King James, it's translated faults, confess your faults to one another. And essentially, if you dive into the word, what it really means is, and this gets a new covenant view on it. It's, Confess the times when you forget who you really are. And that, that, that's a massive difference because we get this idea of I have to find all of these sins and, you know, and, and this is bad. And that, that, that's, a whole, that's an old covenant paradigm. I don't have time to unpack all of that right now. But what James wasn't saying was confess the bad stuff. He's saying when you forget who you really are and you act out of that and who you really are is a child of God. Who you really are is a person with a destiny, with a calling. Who you really are is the righteousness of God in Christ. And when you forget that, I expose my heart to another and say, I forgot who I was this week and I need you to remind me. 
And what James says is, when you do that, you're going to receive healing. So what does this picture of maturing love look like? The most mature expression of love is covenant. Covenant looks like, I, will, I see what's on your life and I will fight for it even when you forget to, even if it costs me. There, there is this expression and this connection of love that will make pretty much all of us, myself included in this room, start to feel a little uncomfortable. But that is, that is showing the world what love is. We, need, we actually need to discover what love is, really, before we can accurately show it to the world. And it means I'm unarmored. I have no protection around you. You can see into, intimacy is into me, I let you see. And I intentionally build these kind of relationships into my life. Now, does this mean I have to hang out my dirty laundry with everyone? No, there's a thing called boundaries. When someone doesn't treat the level of access they have to your heart well, you don't keep giving them access. When people don't treat the level of access to your the level of access they have to your heart well, you remove them to a place where they can handle. That's healthy boundaries. That's valuing your own heart. The other side of that coin is, I pursue relationships with people that treat my heart well, and I work to build them into my life. Early in, um, in my ministry life, and most of the time through my 20s, if I remember rightly, um, there were two guys, and we actually met three mornings a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Some mornings, we walked in there and went, we need coffee, right? <laughs> and we went and got coffee and we chatted. But we, in the course of doing that, we did so much of life together. Um, I was unmarried at that stage. I hadn't been blessed enough to find this um, wonderful soul. Um, as yet, so there was numerous relationships. Oh, you were around then, weren't you? <laughs> numerous relationships that I was going through. These two guys, I journeyed that whole thing with. The ins, the outs, the breakups, the, the does she like me, does she not? Like all of that stuff that is really raw and vulnerable, especially when you spend most of your life in public talking to people and everyone kind of has you for lunch um, after church on a Sunday because I started ministry really early. These were the guys that knew me inside out. These were the guys that spoke to things that I couldn't see. This, this, this was, I remember one of them, um, and I was telling a story of a, of a ministry, I think it was a victory. You know, it was, it was a really cool thing that happened, but the way that I was telling the story, apparently, was showing some kind of identity, prove yourself issues. And he just pulled me aside after, after that, and he just said, hey, you know you don't need to prove yourself around me, Hey. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, when you were telling that story, I don't know if you could see it, but the level of striving that was coming out of you said to me, was communicating to me, I'm trying to prove myself, and I just want you to know, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, whoa, that was some feedback right there. But he was dead right. He was absolutely dead right. And as I really sat with God, and I just went, okay, God, you know my heart. Um, he's, he's like, yeah, yeah, you so embellished that story, hey. Um, I might not have embellished the facts, but I certainly embellished the emotion of it. And it was simply my insecure heart trying to prove myself to, to these other two people who I really loved and valued in ministry. And he just looked right into my soul and just said, hey, 
I believe in you. You don't have to do that around me. Chill. It wasn't comfortable, eh? <laughs> that kind of feedback's never comfortable. But it was exactly what I needed. And through so many thick and thin through those early parts of my life, um, those were the relationships that, that carried me. And that's where I really learned to do life. It's where I really learned to do kingdom. And th- there have been others since in, the, in varying seasons of my life. It's just they're kind of some of the more precious ones. But I want to ask you, who are the people in your life? Now, we, we hope that this is the relationship we have with our spouses. But guys, we need other guys. Girls, you need other girls. You need people of the same gender where your souls knit and there is this, this commitment to one another that transcends our, our, our crap, if I can put it so eloquently, um, that transcends all of our defence strategies and looks right into each other's heart and speaks to who we really are. Who are they for you? And if they're not there right now, now it doesn't mean you have to go up to the first person you see and go, will you be my friend? <laughs> But put that before God because you were, hard, you were born hardwired to connect. We all need this to become whole. We all need this to become whole. We, we need more than just prayer ministry sessions with someone who leaves and goes to the other side of the country and we don't talk to them for a few months. They're, they're the easy ones to do stuff with because they go away and then you're not reminded of it every day. It's awesome and it gave us an acceleration but we need to do this Life on life, heart on heart. It's not about our programs. It's not about our events. It's about us learning to do life on life, speaking to each other um, so far deeper than we're used to. That's what love looks like. That's what covenant looks like because I believe he's building us into a covenant family. He wants to build us into a covenant family. We're not meant to be your average church deal with all the fancy and pretty and programs that do this and that. We'll do heaps of that stuff as we grow. But the foundation, the the kind of thing that the world looks on and says, my, how they love one another, that says, oh my goodness, I want to be part of that. The kind of thing when Jesus says in John 17 in his prayer that they may be one as you, as you, Father, and I are one. That's a pretty hefty level of oneness. that the world may know that you sent me. That was, that was what Jesus said. If you want to evangelize the world, learn what oneness with each other looks like. Walk that out. And as a result, the world will look on and go, you guys have got something amazing. You, you heal relationships. You heal brokenness. You heal marriages. You heal parent-child relations. You heal all this stuff. How does that happen? Because we've learned how to love. So this is a great example of what love looks like, but oh my golly gosh, will it push every wounded, traumatised button in us? And I say, bring it on. Why don't we stand? So let's, let's just put, put our hands out. Let's go into receive mode.
Father, thanks for, thanks in a really funny sort of way for the stuff that you're bringing to the surface. It's not always fun, it's not always easy. It, it, confronting painful memories and painful experiences where we made choices to shut down our hearts and keep people at a safe distance, it's not easy. But God, you've called us to show the world what love really is. And to do that, we want to learn. We want to experience, we want to walk in a level of love that we haven't had a grid for yet. We want to learn what it is to be unarmored with each other. We want to learn what it is for, in the healthiest, most godly way, for, for our, our souls to be knitted together in such a way that says, your battles, they're my battles. And my battles are your battles. Yeah, we see a powerful example of covenant in the book of Ruth where it said, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you, die, where, you, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May God deal with me, ever be, be it ever so severely, if anything but sep- death separates you and me. That was a covenant relationship where I join my life to the life of another and say, we are in this together. And even on your worst day, I will cover you. On your best day, I will champion you. But we will open the kimono of our hearts and let each other see what's there. God, would you build us in such a way that our goal with each other genuinely becomes connection and not safe distance? And would you root out, we give you permission to root out anywhere in us where our relationship goal is to keep people at a safe distance. Some days that's a really close distance. Other days it's a really long one, but it's still a goal of distance. And we want our goal to be connection. And Father, we give you permission to pour your love so heavily, so deeply upon us. We give you permission to to dig out every root of fear, every root of pain, every root of trauma, every root where our needs weren't met. And pour yourself into those places. Show us what it really means to love. And as we've talked today, God, if that has stirred up pain, I just ask for your healing, for your peace to work deeply on every heart. And for us as a house, make us one, Father. Make us one so that the world may know that you sent Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.